This is a podcast from Just World Educational, a talented team headquartered in Charlottesville, Virginia, that is educating for a just and peaceful world. Our website is at www.justworldeducational.org. I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. At JWE, as at our partner publishing company Just World Books, the main focus of our attention so far has been on issues of war, peace, justice, and the Middle East. We have tried to keep our purview at both levels, looking at challenges and possibilities inside the Middle East, and also at peace and justice issues more generally. One person who personifies this holistic approach is someone I'm honored to count as a friend, a man called Doug Hostetter, who's the director of the office that the Mennonite Central Committee, MCC, maintains at the United Nations. Over the past few years, Hostetter has worked with Just World Books to help host book launch discussions for several of our authors right there in the lovely church center building he works in, which is right across Manhattan's First Avenue from the UN building itself. And in 2015, Just World Books was delighted to publish an anthology to which Hostetter himself made two great contributions. It was called The People Make the Peace, Lessons from the Vietnam Anti-War Movement. Soon after JWE launched its first fundraising appeal earlier this year, Doug Hostetter was one of the first to make a donation. Now, in late 2016, JWE has some ambitious plans for next year, which will be, among other things, a year of many significant anniversaries for the Palestine question. You can learn about our plans if you look for the blog post Palestinian Milestones 2017 on our website, www.justworldeducational.org. Obviously, we need to do some more even bigger fundraising if we're to be able to implement our plans. So I thought it would be helpful for people who are still learning about what we're doing and why to talk to Doug Hostetter about his reasons for supporting JWE. Of course, once we got on the phone together on a lovely fall Saturday here on the U.S. East Coast, we found there was a lot more to talk about than just our fundraising appeal. So sit back and settle in to listen as this amazing man who has such a wealth of experience as a deeply engaged peacemaker, recounts some of the highlights of his activism. And crucially, as he explains what led him from working on the issue of Vietnam to working on Palestine, and what the constants in that work have been. Oh yes, and please don't forget to send us the most generous donation you can. Just go to our website at www.justworldeducational.org and click on the donate button there to learn how. Here's how our conversation went. Doug, it's good to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, Doug, we recently published a book um, to, to which you contributed. The book is People Make the Peace, Lessons from the Anti-Vietnam War Movement. Um, and you contributed two wonderful chapters to that. One dealt with um, a negotiation that you were a key part of, which was a negotiation for a people's peace treaty between 
basically the student organizations here in the United States, in South Vietnam, and in North Vietnam at the time. Um, did I get that right? That's correct, yes. And obviously people should read the book if they want to find out some of the adventures you had along the way. Just um, recall quickly the year that that happened and the circumstances in which you did that and what you feel you achieved by doing that. That would have been uh, December of 1970 um, when the U.S. National Student Association uh, decided that since the official U.S. government negotiations that had been taking place in Paris for several years already had not been able to accomplish anything beyond, uh, I think they had accomplished deciding uh, the shape of the table on which they would negotiate and, and kind of the parties that would be there, but literally had not been able to negotiate anything. And so the that summer, the National Student Association passed a resolution saying that uh, uh, students from the United States should explore with students in South Vietnam and students in North Vietnam the establishment of a People's Peace Treaty, um, which would uh, declare our peace with each other. Um, and um, uh, it was interesting that the, initially the State Department uh, was very encouraging of the National Student Association to do this um, kind of thing. Um, but then when they discovered that uh, uh, U.S. peace activists had actually been meeting with North Vietnamese government officials in peace conferences in Eastern Europe and, and then in Paris, uh, and that the North Vietnamese would actually give us visas and invite us to come to North Vietnam, then suddenly they, um, the State Department changed their tune and did everything that they could to, uh, uh, to block us from participating, uh, getting into South Vietnam uh, to meet with uh, students from the Saigon Student Union. But with some difficulties, we were able to, um, I was able to get into South Vietnam, although most of the delegation was blocked, and um, signed the initial draft with the Saigon Student Union, and then traveled to Bangkok and then uh, Laos and met up with the rest of the team that had tried to get into South Vietnam and could not, and then we all flew to Hanoi and um, met with the North Vietnamese Student Union, uh, uh, were warmly received, uh, even received by the, uh, uh, the foreign minister of North Vietnam at the time, uh, and this was at a time when the U.S. was bombing North Vietnam, and there were several times when we had to rush into bomb shelters to uh, keep from being bombed by our own Air Force while we were on the ground. Uh, but then we, we came back by way of Moscow, did our press conference in Paris because we were not certain – we were quite certain that we would not be well-received back in the United States um, – to announce that we had negotiated a peace treaty with uh, students in the North and in the South. And so we officially uh, did the announcement from Paris before returning to the United States. And then that spring, the spring of 1971, um, we took that peace treaty to campuses all across the United States and literally 
hundreds of colleges and universities uh, either did um, student government votes or um, sometimes referendums of the whole campus and the overwhelming majority of the colleges passed the uh, People's Peace Treaty. Uh, then we had uh, uh, congressmen like uh, Ron Dellums and Bell Abzug and others to introduce the People's Peace Treaty into the U.S. Uh, congressional record as a sense of the Congress of what the U.S. government should do. And essentially what we were pointing out to the American people was that um, Vietnamese, both in South Vietnam and North Vietnam, um, wanted American troops to leave, wanted to settle their differences between them, and that it was um, that it was easy to actually get agreement uh, from the vast majority of the Vietnamese peoples uh, on that kind of thing. And so eventually uh, the U.S. Uh, took them another two years, um, and, you know, I'm sure scores of thousands of lives were lost in those two years while we continued the war until Henry Kissinger eventually negotiated the same peace treaty with the government that we had negotiated with the students two years earlier. And uh, in 73, finally, uh, uh, with the Paris Peace Accords, the uh, uh, the United States um, um, withdrew their troops and uh, the prisoners of war came home and the direct American involvement in that war was over, although the war did not finally end until two years later in 75 um, when the government that uh, we had basically propped up and installed um, finally collapsed under um, under the, the North Vietnamese assault and and they left the country. Wow. I mean, it gives me, honestly, goosebumps to think of you and your colleagues from, from the student movement taking that kind of a leadership position, taking those risks and, and bringing that amazing outcome. And then what I love to hear as well is how you took it around the campuses in this country. I mean, the, the forms of organizing that you were using then before the Internet and before, you know, clicktivism were, it took a hard slog. And, you know, you obviously had to, had to walk the walk back then. Yep. So, so yes, that was back, back in the day of, of mimeographs and telephones. Right. <laughs> and as the U.S. mail. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, but it was, we were helped in our organizing by the fact that students knew that when they graduated from college, if the war was still going on, there was a draft, and there was a good chance that they would be drafted and sent to Vietnam. Uh, so the, the campuses had a kind of direct, it, it, it affected people's lives in a more profound way than, than the wars that have taken place since then. Because I guess every because, person. Because we have the, the all volunteer army now, so people, yes. it, it's kind of an economic draft, and That's a large proportion of people who go to colleges will not face the economic draft. And, uh, and fortunately, that is one of the things that 
the United States government and the U.S. military learned from the Vietnam War is that when you have a draft of the entire American people, it means that you will get college educated, you will get middle class, you will even get a few upper class people who will be involved in that war and many of them will look at that war and will judge it on its merits. And and that is essentially what happened during Vietnam is that uh, the American soldiers who were going to Vietnam as military soldiers very quickly realized that uh, the vast majority of the Vietnamese people did not want us there and, and that um, we were fighting the people that we claimed to be there to protect. And um, and they came back. Uh, people like uh, John Kerry uh, came back. <laughs> Indeed. And, Indeed. And asked in Congress, um, how can you ask a person to be the last person killed in Vietnam? Uh, it was clear to him at that point that the war could not be won by the United States um, and that extending the war was was simply wasting more American lives as well as Vietnamese lives. So, um, Doug, you came back um, from, well, that whole experience and um, took the lessons that you had learned regarding Vietnam in a particular direction. Um, could you briefly talk about that direction and then I gather that you didn't go back to Vietnam for another 25 years or so um, until the, the kind of the, the delegation that lay at the heart of, of our book, The People Make the Peace. So what were the lessons that you came away from that experience with? Maybe I'll just mention briefly the other chapter that I wrote in that book, which was um, a, a pacifist in the war zone. Uh, actually, did my alternative service with the Mennonite Central Committee in Vietnam um, prior to uh, being involved with the People's Peace Treaty. So I had actually spent three years right after college uh, working in South Vietnam in the middle of the war zone, in, in the middle of a war. But instead of carrying a gun um, or flying in a plane, I was actually doing literacy work with Vietnamese children whose schools had been destroyed by the American Air Force. So that had a really profound, profound effect on me. Um, I'll never forget the 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 party that the teachers threw for me at the end of the three years while I was there. And one of the teachers stood up and gave a toast, and he said, Doug, you have been here for the last three years. You have loved our community and our children, and you've helped thousands of children learn to read and write. But they said, you've been like a man standing at the bottom of the waterfalls with a small bucket, trying to throw the water back up over the top. Please go home and build a dam. That had a, an incredibly profound impact on me, and I realized he was right. Um, my real work had to be back in the United States trying to prevent the war. So when I came back to the United States, then I was in graduate school, 
and got involved with the U.S. National Student Association delegation that then negotiated the People's Peace Treaty. So you were building the dam, yeah. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I was trying to do because I was very aware that I was an American and I was free to leave after my three-year contract with the Mennonite Central Committee. All of my Vietnamese friends desperately wanted to get out of the war zone and they had no option. Uh, they, you know, they they couldn't even be pacifists like myself doing humanitarian work. If they were military age, almost all of them were being grabbed by the by the military and forced to fight against their own people on one side or the other. And um, and I, you know, it was it was an incredible tragedy. And um, you come back from a war zone with um, pacifists don't come back with the kind of guilt that GIs do, that you, they know that they accidentally or purposely killed many innocent people. But you do come back with what's called survivor's guilt. You survived when there was no good reason why you should survive and others died. And you have this incredible guilt that you're still living and the people that you loved are still back in the war zone. Uh, for me, it was many Vietnamese students and teachers. And my way of dealing with the guilt was to, to follow the advice of that uh, teacher who asked me to build the dam and to just throw myself into trying to stop that war. And that helped to keep my sanity. Um, when the war finally ended, uh, finally in, in 75 and the last American mm-hmm. flew out, um, some of my colleagues who had worked in Vietnam continued to work for friendship and and to end the sanctions that the U.S. put on Vietnam and to try to do relief and reconstruction work in Vietnam. But I, I took the other lesson from the war, and that was that I had learned the destructiveness of American military and corporate interests um, abroad. I had seen what they had done to the Vietnamese people, and I recognized that right after Vietnam, um, we next moved into Nicaragua and El Salvador. And then after Nicaragua and El Salvador, then it was Iraq. And uh, then after Iraq, it was uh, I recognized uh, Israel and Palestine as another place where we were being involved. And then Iraq again and, and Bosnia and uh, Afghanistan. So I've, I came back and became involved with um, primarily groups working on peace from, you know, usually from a faith-based perspective. I worked for Methodists, for Quakers, for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, did a little teaching, but it, working around U.S. international military uh, uh, involvement around the world so i have um i i have taken those lessons and tried to understand how they um how this has affected other people uh primarily in the uh in the third world um my first trip to uh palestine would have been in i think probably in 1987 uh, during the first Antifada, um, 
when I was um, traveling and working for the Fellowship for Reconciliation that uh, had deep roots in that part of the world. Um, and I remember um, being smuggled into Gaza and staying in a Palestinian home um, in the middle of the first Antifada where we had to stay totally inside the home until the evening when the Israeli troops would go back to their bases and then you could come out and be involved uh, in in the community uh, after dark when the Israeli troops were, were back. But during the day, you basically had to spend your entire time there. And just um, took my experience of, of seeing what it was like for um, the enemy's peasants in central Vietnam um, living under an, an occupying army and recognizing exactly the same kinds of things happening to uh, to Palestinians um, in Gaza and in the West Bank and uh, recognizing the strengths of the cultures and the people um, who are living under those kind of situations and wanting to be in solidarity with them, wanting to try to help them in whatever ways to, to use the privileged positions that I have from being an American living in the United States that is funding so many of the occupations in so many parts of the world and um, trying to educate, trying to learn from the people who live under those occupations and bring that knowledge back to uh, try to build the dam across the top. Well, gosh, I mean, there's still a long way to go um, on the Palestine issue, but um, do you think there has been a new sort of awakening of consciousness among younger Americans on the Palestine issue in recent years? I, there, there certainly has been, um, especially among young Jewish Americans. Um, you know, it, it, when I first started working on Palestine, uh, it was interesting that um, my Jewish friends from the anti-Vietnam War movement, you could work with them on Central America, you could work with them on uh, um, South Africa, you could work with them on anywhere else in the world except on Israel and Palestine. Uh, and uh, with the exception of Noam Chomsky and a very few other uh, Jewish activists. Uh, it was just an area that you just could not, you could not go with um, people who had been a part of the anti-war movement during Vietnam. And I am really pleased to say that those colleagues now um, are working with me on Israel and Palestine. Um, uh, you know, then, and, and this is people my age, but it's also true on on campuses uh, across the United States, is that uh, um, Jewish students are getting to know uh, Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian students uh, on their campuses. Many campuses have uh, excellent courses on Middle Eastern history. We have the advantage that uh, you now have courageous Israeli authors who are exposing some of the mythology that uh, 
was originally put forward that you know this was a uh, um, you know a, a people without a land for a land without a people kind of concept that uh, was so much a part of the early rhetoric on uh, Israeli Palestine and and so there um, I do sense that there is there is a change happening uh, in the United States. Um, among many peoples, and not just among Jews, but uh, mm. among many, uh, many, many young people who are now no longer willing to say that uh, the Middle East is, uh, you know, an international all-free zone, where uh, the issues that we struggle for on justice and peace in all other areas of the world um, are fine, but you can't be consistent and use those same values, those same principles, those those same um, um, the the principles that we we would want to live under and work under, and in all of the areas that we live and work. Uh, suddenly, um, many Americans are no longer willing to say uh, this is an exception because of the tragedies that happened in World War II. We, we can't look honestly at what is happening in Palestine today. Uh, so I, I, I am encouraged. I, I do think there is a change that is happening. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you do because that's kind of part of the founding um, impetus for me personally with founding Just World Books as a publishing company and then for the colleagues and friends Richard Falk and Michael Hudson and Mona Khalidi and others with whom we founded this new nonprofit, Just World Educational. Um, and we are very, very glad to have your support in every way. Um, I wonder if you could just say a few words about why you think that Just World Educational is worth supporting. Well, I have um, I've looked at the books that you have published in the last couple of years, and uh, I've actually helped to facilitate uh, quite a number of the book launches uh, in New York uh, with my position as um, I used to be the uh, one of the co-chairs of the Israel-Palestine NGO Working Group at the United Nations, and we were very pleased to, um, to assist and co-sponsor the uh, many of the book launches in New York, and those are—I mean, these every, each every one of those books has has been well written, well researched, um, and uh, done with a kind of integrity um, that I feel very comfortable with and, and would like to support. So, when I learned that uh, you are moving beyond just publishing to uh, to try to establish an educational foundation that would uh, take seriously trying to educate people on the issues which the books that you publish are written about. I would, I was very excited and wanted to support that as much as I could. Well, thank you. We have some great plans for 2017, and I'm delighted, Doug, that you're going to be part of those. Um, obviously want to um, brainstorm with you a lot on how to make sure that they are um, as successful as possible. But 
thanks for taking time out of your, your weekend to talk to us about this. I am just really moved by everything that you have said, especially the historical stuff. Um, just one quick um, coda here. So you, you're now working on the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese language translation of The People Make the Peace. How does that feel? <laughs> well, I must tell you, I am, uh, it forced me to read it um, in a much deeper way <laughs> than my first time through the book. Um, I mean, I knew my couple chapters quite well because I worked on them pretty hard for a year, but um, uh, the others I had kind of read through quickly. Um, the uh, I am very excited that the uh, the primary translator for this book is actually one of the high school students who I worked with um, more than 40 years ago in Tam Ki in Central Vietnam in the middle of the war in the middle of the war zone, and uh, five years ago. He immigrated to the United States. Um, uh, I helped him a little bit in that, but uh, he immigrated to the United States and he's been teaching in this country. Um, so when uh, when we found a um, Vietnamese publisher in, in in Vietnam that was interested in publishing it, uh, I asked if they would consider. Um, using uh, Nguyen Vang Nui, uh, who uh, was one of my students who went on to get his PhD actually in Vietnam uh, and taught many years in Vietnam before coming here. And then when they went back and did the research, the publisher realized that uh, Nguyen Vang Nui had translated one of their other English language books, a, a book uh, by one of the American veterans, uh, Band of Brothers, um, which was he translated I think probably in the 90s um, uh, while he was still in Vietnam. So anyhow, he is he is in this country. We have kept in touch um, over the years. And um, I discovered that, um, you know, trained, translation is we want to get the nuance and the meaning of what the authors were saying and if you simply do a direct translation of the words, you often miss what the author is trying to say. So um, Mui goes through his translation, and then we've got a list of dozens of phrases and, and things which then on the weekends we discuss. Uh, you know, um, how do you translate, uh, you know, the Vietnamese uh David versus the American Goliath uh, for a culture that um, doesn't know the biblical story of David and Goliath. Um, how do you translate that into uh, Vietnamese in a way that makes sense to them? And lots of other uh, things that I would not have realized, but there, you know, um, uh, there are no cultural. <laughs> No cultural understanding of a lot of American um, uh, words and cultural references. So it's been a wonderful experience um, working with um, a former high school student who still calls me his teacher, even though he's gone on to get his Ph.D. Um, um, but in Vietnam, if you have ever been a teacher, 
uh, that is a relationship that is a lifetime relationship. Uh, I will always be his professor because I taught him English uh, back in 1967 in, in Dumkey uh, and then incorporated him as one of my literacy teachers in, in our literacy program for the children whose schools had been destroyed by the Air Force. So this is an incredible circle that I could not have ever guessed might have happened, but to be working with him on this translation is, is such an incredible incredible privilege, and it's forcing me uh, to look and understand everything that each of the authors in that book was trying to say in a much more profound way than what I ever did in the first reading. So um, did you actually ever get a PhD? No. I, I dropped out. I had actually... I had a full scholarship at the new at the new school in New York for a mm-hmm. PhD program, and uh, I got my master's and traveled to was still studying on my PhD and uh, got the opportunity to travel to Hanoi with a student delegation. Came back and worked full time to try to end that war. Never went back to get my PhD, and I've never regretted it. Well, I think you deserve a PhD in practical peacemaking. So if there's such a thing, I, I hereby award it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I have I've enjoyed it. I have never – the fact that I didn't get a PhD meant that I did not get locked up in a university somewhere, but I had to continue to find activist organizations that were doing the justice and peace work that needed to be done outside of the university. Uh, and um, although I have ended up teaching as an adjunct in uh, in several colleges and universities, um, my primary life and work has always been outside, and that has come, I think, as a result of the blessing that I never ended up getting my PhD. <laughs> well, thanks for everything you do, Doug. I mean, it's my real privilege and pleasure to know you and to learn from you. It has been a mutual privilege, and I wish you the best in this new venture that you're starting with the Just World Educational Fund, and I will support it in whatever ways I can.